Hello, everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name's Gary Fowler, and I'm the host of GSD Presents Silicon Valley in AI and Tech. I'm a serial entrepreneur with 17 startups under my belt. I was on the original management team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion. And also, a month and a half ago, we sold EVA to Vizier. They acquired Vizier. Uh, they acquired EVA. So Vizier is a Canadian company. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. So today I've got an incredible friend, a great biotech entrepreneur, a medical doctor, former investment banker. I mean, you talk about the wide background. Shalab Gupta is, is a physician by training and background. He found his passion in bringing new technologies to market, ultimately to help patients, physicians, and of course, society. He finds novel, novel medicines, novel diagnostics, and healthcare technology solutions that are either underappreciated or in the early stage of development and brings them to an entirely new world of investors, of a team, and partners to be able to make this world a better place. So with that, I'd like to bring my friend Shalab on. Hi, Shalab. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Gary. Thank you for having me. So I have a question for you. How in the world do you go from, you know, being a doctor and you know, working in the hospital, New York uh, University, Grossman School of Medicine, you did your residency and internship. And what happened? Like one day you flipped the switch and said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Is it, does that how to happen? You happen to be in the middle of something and all of a sudden you said, I want to change my life. What, how does that work? So physicians, uh, as a physician, uh, we are all trained to take care of patients. And our goal, ultimately, if you think a bigger picture, goal is to help people, help them better, change their quality of life, help them with treatment. As I was doing my training, Gary, I came across a few different ideas. Uh, I worked in internship and ICU setting. I had uh, ideas of different devices, different catheters, things that can make people's life better. But as I continued my training, I realized that uh, coming up with an idea is only one part of the equation. You need an idea. A lot of people say this is the best idea ever. As you know, anyone could have founded Amazon, but no one else did. Uh, Jeff Bezos created Amazon. Anyone else could have come up with a car battery, but Tesla was founded by Elon Musk. Took longer time, but they, they are where they are. So idea in itself is not valuable or useful. You need more than an idea. And that realization led me to branch out of being a physician, but to do something that affects a lot more people. As a physician, I can take care of a few thousand patients, a few hundred patients, maybe several thousand patients in the course of my career. But what we do today affects millions of people, and not just in the U.S., not just in a place where I'm practicing medicine, but across the world. So... You know, you've seen a lot. So I got to, I'm just curious. So, you know, when you were working with patients, you know, they're, they're, it's kind of like a startup, like patients have instincts to live or die. I mean, and they give up or don't give up. How important is that? By the way, I'm just really curious. You've seen people die, right? How is it for, does the will to live important, Shalab? Like, really, is it mean that much? I think uh, this is a very common question that, uh, as you know, there is a placebo effect wherein if it tells a patient that you're going to get better and people feel better, they get better. 
And there is a, also a contrary to placebo effect, which is nocebo effect, where we tell you whatever I'm going to do will not help you. I think uh, as a society, we play too much emphasis on individual uh, you know, risk profile. But what I can tell you 100% that no patient is similar to other patient. In other words, if a patient comes to us or comes to me as a physician, I have no way to be able to tell them I can give them probability, but for a patient, if they end up in having overall longevity for six months and that patient dies, for him or her, that probability is 100%. So the challenge is that how do you communicate and meeting to patients in a in empathic manner, in a humane manner, that is something which is not always there because physicians, on, on one hand, they, they go through the training to take care of patient and the way our system works is everything about documentation, putting the filling of this checkbox there, oh, yeah, filling yeah, of yeah. that checkbox there. Yeah, and that's the thing. I know when I was at Stanford, everything was about percentages. Everything. I never, I'd never been around a situation that would talk about well, let the percentage of this not working, there's a 5% chance or whatever. I mean, it was like crazy. And I, I take it that's because of liability issues, right? They don't want to have the liability. So they're giving you percentages in case, worst case scenario, right? Right. Right. And just uh, being able to comfort a patient, uh, being able to help them understand that uh, this probability may be 10% that there is uh, some wound they have. Uh, I took care of patients after cardiac example. Every red wound that looks like red is not inflammation. It's not infection. It could be inflammation. It could be they just came out of surgery and their body's healing. But as you pointed out, I think uh, the challenge we have is that we give too much information to our patients, which they don't know how to interpret, but we have lost touch with their being a passionate, uh, having empathy to be being able to talk to people. And part of it is, as you said about the liability, but part of it is also that our system does not allow physicians to talk to patients. It's more about doing procedures, more about, you know, filling the checkboxes. That was one of my biggest uh, challenge of uh, practicing medicine. And uh, I think a system has to change in order for people to be able to give better care. Do you think, do you think that, um, you know, so you have the placebo effect. Is it better to give patients hope or is it better to talk about probabilities? You know what I mean? Because I'll tell you a direct example, Shalab. This is just me, right? My father was in the hospital and this one doctor came in and he was having some problems. I mean, he's 89 years old, but they told me he was going to die uh, three years before that within seven days. I mean, literally, that's what the doctor told me. But, you know, he's lucky if he makes another seven days. While my father, you know, one of the things that happened with me is that I bought him a puppy. I bought him a, I told him I'll buy you a basset hound. I do, I would tell him anything at that point. I just wanted to make him happy. And he, and he looked at me and he said, you promise? And I said, oh yeah, dad. He said, I want a brown and white female because they're nicer. Well, the point is what happened is from that day forward, he started to get better. Shalom. They said he would never walk and talk again. And he walked and talked. In fact, he started bitching again. My father had a, a nice habit of, you know, get complaining. And he started bitching. And, you know, so he walked and talked. And he would take his dog for a walk. And he would walk down the road. And that's how we got him out there. And then once I took him home from a nursing, I had him in the nursing home for just a few weeks. And I brought him home and brought nurses to his house. And all of a sudden, 
you know, because he had a familiar settings and he had his dog, he thought everything was normal again. And his dementia that he had, he had a bit of dementia and it started to go away. He started to become normal again. And so the point is, you know, I think that in my opinion, you know, part of it is believing that you can do it. And, and just like in a startup, visualizing it and getting the shit done, right? And with my father, I saw it. They said he would never walk. He walked. They said he would never talk. He talked. In fact, I have a video I played yesterday. I put on my Facebook page for Father's Day of my father talking to me about when I was a kid, right? So the point, it's really interesting. So, you know, you transition. You went down through uh, medical school. You moved, moved over to doing investments, investment banking. So was it interesting for you where you when you moved over to the investment banking side? Was that like exciting? As exciting as I mean, a doctor, you're like the king, right? You're like God coming in. People like they're like little sheep, right? And they'll do it like lambs. They'll do anything you tell them. If you say, listen, you need to do this. You could tell them anything. You need to take 10 aspirin. You can tell them anything. They would do it. Right. So. But then when you move into investment banking, it's a little bit different world, right? How is how how is that mental transition for you, you know, going from this godlike status over, or was it the same? Or the investment bankers like God too? So uh, one of the things that you talked about, Carrie, is about having a vision and uh, having a not the company, but also for yourself. My vision was not to do A, B, or C. My vision was to be involved in something that eventually starts to affect people's life, as in helping people. So investment banking and financial services was a, a way to get a different set of skills. I never envisioned that uh, for the rest of my life, I'll become a stock analyst and remain that. So I found it was a, uh, a way to get a skill set, understand what it takes for if you create innovation and nobody really cares, if you create innovation and you can't sell it, it's of no use. So Gary, to me, that was a part of the journey. It wasn't the, that permanent destination. And I've done many different things in life and I couldn't tell you that it was all plans. Some of them was serendipity. Uh, we all love to tell you that it was all planned that I went to work for Investment Bank and then went to work for Genentech. It was not this way. But one thing was very clear and one thing always in the back of my mind that I wanted to be part of a solution that can help a lot more people. And that solution means a, a device, that's great. If that solution means a drug, that's great. If it's a diagnostic, that's great. I was less focused on what the specific solution is, but more focused to gain broad set of skills. And that came to help me. And today I run a public company. It's very useful. So, you know, the these use the same analytics schools that you have uh, skills as, that you have as a doctor for your company. Do you look at it the same way as a scientist or how, how is it, you know? So I'm trained in internal medicine, then went to do residency in a physical medicine rehab and fellowship in cardiopulmonary. But a physician is ultimately, if you think about a physician, they are trying to diagnose a person. If it is a diagnosis that you don't know, you go through a, a trying to do it. So as you know, there is a physical examination called HMP, history physical examination. So history of a patient helps you to identify what a problem causes. Then you look at symptoms and then you do the testing. All of them help you to come up with a hypothesis that you can then give the treatment uh, to the patient for. Same thing goes in the company setting. 
Gary, when I think about a company, I, I think about it solving a problem. And that problem, it has to be solved within the constraint of a specific time, a specific money, and outcome. The situation is slightly different here because in patient setting, also you have to think about can can this patient afford it? Not just economically, but you know you don't want to give, a, for example, a knee replacement to a person who cannot undergo a knee replacement because of the cardiac condition. Same thing goes for starting a company that you have to think about different parameters. But actually, there are a lot of skills that carry that is being a physician or a stock analyst versus running a company. I call it a transferable skill set that you can use them. Got it. Interesting. And, you know, so, you know, just a question for you. Uh, how much, you know, so I have a couple of my friends are, um, are uh, pretty high level physicians, right? But how much, so how do you know what a, a good physician, right? And you know, there's a difference. There's a person who graduated top in the class and the bottom of the class, right? But how do you go down through and then, you know, it's kind of like with an entrepreneur too, right? How do you know what a successful entrepreneur? But a doctor, it's really interesting. How do you know what kind of person would you, so Shalab, let's say you have a cardiac problem. How do you know who to go to, right? How do you figure that person out? I'm just curious about it. So I've wondered, like, would you go to the best, the number one in that hospital and say, listen, I want the chief of cardiology, or do you go to your friends and ask them? Or what do you do? What's the secret? Tell us the secret sauce. Gary, what the problem is, if uh, you have a, um, if a person, not you, but a person has a, uh, a valve replacement that needs to be done, and let's say there are some other complications with the valve replacement, want to go, if you can go to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, NYU in New York City, you want to go to the best surgeon. But on the other hand, because the surgeon is uh, operating on you and You've been doing this for quite some time. They have experience. They know. They have know-how. It's a skill set. It's a dexterity. It's a, a, a physical a, a skill set. On the other hand, there are where you also need to have someone who could have empathy. So, for example, as you talked about your uh, father, if your dad is uh, undergoing dementia, you want to have a honest uh, geriatric uh, physician who has some empathy. Because this takes a much longer gradual time frame. So you want to be able to have someone who can understand father's situation, who can understand what your father's specific requirements are. Um, but overall, I call it a uh, two or three ways you can think about it. One is a technical skill that somebody, a surgeon could be very in surgery, but uh, may not have empathy or I call it bedside manner. Now, have you met those people who are really good, but they're like divas? They don't like that, and unfortunately, it's just the way it is. Uh, so you want to have someone who has a good bedside manner. Bedside manner do, do not mean just bedside, but somebody who can take care of patients and make truly uh, physicians have a role in, in the past. And in many, many eons ago, it used to be like you are a healer. So you want to have somebody who has a technical skill. If, if you have a surgery, then you say, well, okay, if the person is rude to me, I, I don't care because I'm going to go through surgery and I'm, I can move on. But in ideal world, you want to have somebody who has a great technical skill and also with you. Um, that would be the best combination because you don't want to go to somebody who was doing the first time in their career 
doing, somebody has to start doing first time in their life, but uh, you may not want to be there. Yeah, yeah, I and, see you. Uh, you, you touch your nose there for a second. You know the deal. So, no, I mean, most, you know. But, yeah, Shalab, most people don't know, right? So they don't, I mean, you come into a doctor, doctor's a doctor for people. It's like binary, you know. Uh, it's really interesting. It's kind of like a, a yes or a no. You go in and a person's a cardiologist or cardiologist and, you know, you don't think about the rest of the story, right? There is a lot of uh, online information is available, Gary, today. Um, you know, people have a, a hospitals are forced to create uh, more transparent model. If uh, you go to a particular hospital, if they have more risk of infection, they have to disclose it. So there are more resources today than they used to be 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So a lot more information out there. The challenge, though, I would agree with you, it's hard to figure out. Uh, like I said, there is information as you talk about in phobicity. There's a lot of information. The question is, how do you make sense? Well, you know, you know, and I got to ask you about this because I, I, I don't know if we've spoken about it, but these concierge physicians that are out there, Shalab, now, you get somebody that's a concierge physician that causes you, you know, six or $10,000 a month or a year, right? Are they that better? I mean, are these concierge physicians, are they at the top of their game? I, I can't comment on the physician's quality, but I think a patient interaction is a lot better, Gary, because they are not, uh, as a physician, one of the reasons that I decided to not practice medicine at some point was that, you know, um, it depends on what type of medicine you practice, but a physician, if it's an initial visit, you get 45 minutes to take care of patients. If you're a repeat visit or follow-up visit, it's a 25. The, the part is that a physician is supposed to talk to patient, but the moment patient starts talking, physician starts to interrupt. And on an average, remember the stats, and this is not new one, so older statistics might have changed, but on an average, a well care visit a physician interrupts patient every 18 seconds. Oh my it means God. that you can't even, you can you can't talk to a patient, a physician, and let physician be able to hear anything. And part of the problem is not with physician. I, I I know you will think that I have five, but our system encourages to keep documenting. If I didn't document that I asked you about your, uh, you know, bowel movement as an example, probably is very real, but. If I didn't ask you about sleep and a bowel moment, if I don't do put those check boxes, that I never took care of that part. So, conscious medicine allows you the incentives are different. If you go as a Gary Fowler to a conscious physician, they are not judging, being judged on the same metric. Therefore, they have a time to hear you. More, more, most often than not, my patients wanted to talk to them about things that bother them. That, for example, that, that a patient would say. My wife died uh, last month. I feel depressed, doctor. I don't feel like medicine. If you could spend with that patient five minutes or 10 minutes of your time, help them understand that this is a natural response, that they could do a few things that mm -hmm. could help them eliminate the pain that they are going through, that would be helpful. And the, that part of medicine, that's what we go to medical school for, gone or taken away from us. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if it, but Shalab, you know, just to interject a point, I mean, there's another part of it, right? Because most of the time, these concierge physicians are generally high-level uh, doctors that have had, you know, they're, they're well-known, they've written a lot of art hundreds of articles, and, you know, maybe the chief of surgery, but, but they have the context. 
the thing is, if you go to one of them, they have the context to get you in. So they know who the best person, gastro, right. uh, gastro doctor, right? They know who to take send you to because they're their friends. And they're not going to say no to you because you've been referred to somebody. It's like sales, right? And the reason I'm bringing it back is because that's kind of like what happens in a startup, isn't it? You're going out. You want to meet the high-level people. You need to have the same kind of network to connect the dots. Now, I know you, you know, being on Wall Street, being a doctor, you know, you've created a number of successful companies. So how in the world, you know, what in your mind helps to create these successful companies? There is not a there, so I'll get through a few points here and I'll try to outline certain things. But the, one of the key components, Gary, for any company, any idea is that you need to have a few key and what they are, they are in my mind as following. Number one, it has to be a big enough market. Um, it cannot be a small, as an example, I'll tell you, I was at NYU, there was a physician or surgeon who came up with a scalpel that will not nick surgeon's hand. But that may be a big market, but not big enough for somebody to make an investment. Maybe, maybe not. Just giving you an example, market. Um, the second part is a competitive advantage. Um, in the biotech or drug industry, the competitive advantage is primarily focused on IP, intellectual property, patent. Sometimes it is also known of manufacturing, how you yeah. manufacture a particular drug. So yeah. that's a second part, which is a big enough competitive advantage. The third thing is, Gary, if I am the 10th player, if the car battery electric car companies, there are so many of them out there. In 2022, somebody comes up and starts the next electric car company. They may have a great idea, but the market said there are a lot of so competitive landscape. What it is today, but not only what it is today, but also what it will be in three years down the road, five years down the road. And the reason I say that because in any industry, biotechnology, any drug you're developing, it takes several years to get to the market. So you have to think about competition today, but also think about what the competitive landscape would look like on the road. The next thing is that uh, having a specific goal, a specific market, a smaller market segment in mind. Um, biotech companies can do lots, but in order to for a company to succeed, they need to have, or a company needs to have a, a product a smaller market where you can show proof of concept. Uh, tech companies call it MVP, minimal product. In biotech, uh, you have to have some sort of data that shows that if there is a broad technology, a platform technology, it works in that specific indication. The challenge happens, one of the challenges happen, I don't mean this happens to everyone, but one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is that you have so many ideas and you say, I can also do this, I can also do that, and that, uh, if on the other side is an investor, that starts to scare people because they say you have so many challenges to deal with, and if you're not focused, you will not succeed. So having a very specific sub, uh, you know, market where you focus on. Then the other part is that they carry understanding, as you pointed out, understanding your ecosystem. Um, if you are running a biotech company, if you're running a medical device. One constant theme about uh, running any company is no matter what your business plan is, it's going to change. So it's not that uh, you don't have to have a business plan, but you have to be flexible. And the example I'll give you, an analogy is not my own analogy, so I borrow from someone else, but an analogy I'll, I'll use is the one is airline pilot. If a plane is going from San Francisco to New York City, uh, Newark Airport, it has a specific flight path 
But if there is a headwind or tailwind, if the weather is not good, you as an airline pilot, you have to be able to keep changing the course. And the course, you may want to get to Newark in five hours. It may take five and a half hours. In that case, you have to account for uh, the amount of fuel you need, uh, where you're going to land. So it's an iterative process. Um, early on in my career, I created a business plan. I went to pitch to some people. I, I not only got the, uh, the part that people wanted to invest, but also they gave feedback and you iterate that plan. You iterate that business plan and go next time, make it better. It's an iterative, continuously iterative process. There are two other ingredients that I can talk about, and I'm sure there are many I've missed, but one other part is that uh, it's a team sport. Mm -hmm. No matter who you are, no matter what background you have, uh, Gary, you need a team. Team is the key component of it. Uh, you get to a certain point, you have a good enough business plan, let's say you have the money, you still need people who can work together, a cohesive team to execute. And, you know, um, any, any, any business, say Gary, you need investors, you need people who believe in you. And that is what creates a, the whole ecosystem. And investors, say, many of them will give you constructive feedback, not only that they, if they are interested in investing, they can give you money, but they also may not give you money, but they can give you feedback. And um, you have to pick and choose which feedback you can implement. Some feedback, you know, you should have a 100,000 customers to sell if you're selling a widget company as in healthcare IT, but you may not have 100,000 customers today. And that that way you say, well, Shlav, I got this feedback, I can't implement. But then you know that to this type of investors, you need 100,000 uh, customers and that traction. So there are different types of feedback. Some of them you can't implement them today because they, they, it should be wishful thinking to have. But to be able to understand and learn from doing it, not just to have a very rigid idea, is the key. No, it's amazing. So you were talking about the team. Now, so what's one characteristic of uh, a team player that's important for you? So you're going to hire somebody. What's a one yeah. characteristic that you look at? It's hard to say, but I will tell you if I have to pick only one thing, it is a passion. Mm -hmm. I want somebody who is passionate about what they're doing. I don't even care if you're passionate and completely opposite for you than mine. I, I would rather have you than somebody who is struck shoulder. You know, what do you think about this? I don't know. I, I would not. I can't work with people yeah, who well, have just no opinion. And, 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 you know, uh, startup, right? And you have to see people like this. It's like boring, isn't it? And they take. Yeah, I want to have somebody who's. Yeah, I, I want to have people who believe in something. And because the passion is one key, Gary, that helps you. It's like an antidote. It's like a, it's like an antibody to to the disappointments that come along the way. There is no company, there is no startup, any company. You have a plan. You will encounter obstacles. They're just part and parcel. And what helps you overcome that obstacle is passion. It's not experience. It's not 20 years at this big company. 10 years at. I appreciate that, but if you're not passionate. Um, you can't bring your best to the company, your best to the team. And I think, Gary, that's, a, that's in my mind, is one number one factor. So as I said, I look for exp experience. I look for the right skill set. Sure, if you're passionate, but you have no understanding, that's also not very helpful. But to come back, all things equal, passion is one that helps people to build something. And passion in the right way. It's not being passionate and being reckless, but being passionate and being able to contribute to a problem.
No, I agree with you. You know, I had um, lunch slash dinner with Andrew Straginski in Palo Alto. Andrew Straginski is a right-hand man of uh, Rupert Murdoch. And uh, Carl Page, Larry Page's brother, was there, the co-founder of Google's brother. And so we had this dinner at this Indian restaurant. And, you know, I was sitting next to Andrew. We had a couple of, I had a couple of wines, so I was a little loose. And I said to him, what's one thing? He said, I've studied 3,000 entrepreneurs around the world. And I said, well, what, what's one thing that each one of them has in common? Because we were talking about Murdoch. And I said, geez, he, you know, he's married to this Chinese woman and then he got divorced. And, you know, he's been up and down and in and out. I mean, doesn't it get it bother him? You know what I mean? She, he said, well, there's one thing. Shalab, what do you think is the one thing he said that he sees in all entrepreneurs? When he looked at it, they did analysis of the 3,000. What's one characteristic that they see in the most successful entrepreneurs? I, I don't know the answer, but I'll guess if they're passionate about what they do. And the passion is not about selling the company and making the money. And I always say to the entrepreneurs that if you think there's a way to make money, you're in the wrong business. Um, but passion being very, very focused on what you do. Yeah, and you I, live and die with that. And he told me, you know, passion's one of them, but the most number one thing was amnesia. And I said, what do you mean? He said, because they never let the past hold them back. Never. He said, they never talk about the past. And I know from, uh, you know, a couple billionaire friends that I have, they just don't talk about the past. They only talk about what's happening today and what they're going to do. You know what I mean? And they don't let, if they have a, a problem, they don't let it get them down. They just move around it. They don't talk about it. It's amazing. And so it's just interesting. So amnesia is really important. Right? <laughs> I, I would just uh, modify that statement just slightly. So you don't have to be stuck in your past, but you can learn from your past. You can learn the things that worked and learn from them because, sure. as I said, obstacles, making mistakes is a part and parcel. Nobody ever gets it right the first time around, second time around. Even the big companies, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, famously quotes uh, that I've made millions of dollars, billions of dollars worth of mistakes, but some mistakes that work that created Amazon to where it is today. But going back to this part, Gary, you don't have to be stuck with your past because everybody fails. But the question is, that can you learn from your mistake? Can you make it better next time? Yeah, no, I agree with you. So we're coming up to the top of the show. Um, what, you know, one final question and what are your recommendations uh, for new entrepreneurs, what are some of the recommendations you would have for them? People just getting started out today and, and some of the challenges with the financial markets, the way they are, et cetera. What would you say to them? I'll just outline a few of them in no particular order. Find a problem big enough that you can address. Find something that is a competitive advantage. Uh, don't create something that is a me too or slightly better. Competitive advantage, understand the landscape where you're going for, have a specific narrow focus, uh, create a solution that will solve that problem, find investors who believe in you, uh, work on something that you truly care about, money or no money aside, and you're willing to spend your nights and day on it, uh, or else you can't succeed. Build a team, uh, raise money uh, from the investors, but also get good investors who can give you feedback uh, not only in terms of giving you the money, but also what the product could look like. Uh, and Gary, the, ultimately the part that you and I talked about is have a passion, have a team that believes in you, that believes in each other. Uh, because uh, it's not the question of the CEO and the founder 
is the only person the team believes in and they can't work with each other, then you have to be there every single minute to execute every single project, every single plan. Yeah, no, I agree. And you got to know how to, uh, you got to hire people a lot smarter than yourself, right? The smarter the people are, the better it is, especially if you get them on right. board. Shalab, I want to thank you very much for coming on my show today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to connect? LinkedIn is uh, one medium that I use fairly often. Um, otherwise, uh, uh, you know, uh, reach out to me in any, you know, Unisacive has an email address. Um, but LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out to me. That's great. Shalab, I want to thank you for joining my show today. To all my audience out there, my name is Gary Fowler. I'm the CEO, President, and Co-Founder of GSD. Get Shit Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of GSD Presents. I'll be back again Thursday. Shalab, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. To all my audience out there, stay safe, stay happy, and stay healthy. I'll see you soon. Take care. Love you. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you.